I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Okay, welcome back everyone to Disasters Deconstructed. We are up to week 15. Happy Monday morning. Hey, Ksenia. Hello, everyone. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm good. We're almost at the end of season two, which is kind of scary. But it gives us the time to reflect and plan what's next. Season three, right? Planning for the second half of the year. Yeah, but I think, you know, we're kind of, um, <laughs> we, we've deserved a little break. Uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to season three. There's so many more interesting guests and interesting conversations. But nevertheless, you know, th- this season isn't over yet. Why are we talking about season three already? Um, so today we keep talking about marginalization and vulnerability. We're going to continue our conversation about the voices that are rarely heard when we discuss disasters. And we're going to talk about a very particular marginalized group that's hardly ever discussed for different reasons people who are incarcerated, prisoners. And we're delighted to have Carly Purdom with us today, uh, one of very few researchers who are actually working in this area. So it's really, really exciting. Carly is a research assistant professor at the Hazard Reduction Recovery Center in Texas A&M University. Welcome, Carly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm just really excited to be here and um, have this opportunity to talk about um, this topic. Yeah, I really don't get to talk about it enough. So any opportunity to you know, draw more attention to the subject, I'm really excited mm. for. Yeah, we're excited too. This is, it's a very interesting topic to talk about. And well, as Jason said, we don't really think about prisoners. We don't really talk about, you know, I, I personally, I don't really know much at all about this kind of marginalized group of population. Great, it was going to be a good conversation then. <laughs> so, you know, t- t- tell us about your research. So how, first of all, how did you end up focusing on prisoners in the context of disasters? And actually, why do we even need to talk about prisoners in, in the context of disasters? So I actually started this research back in 2015. I was uh, working on a different project related to long-term disaster recovery in Texas at the time. So I was talking to someone in local government about the wildfires in Texas in 2011. They were um, really devastating from the state. And um, just looking at talking about the role of local organizations in recovery. And so this official, you know, in this conversation, he, he handed me an event flyer that had been given to him by the Texas Department of Criminal Justice there was a prison in the area and he told me how you know, some of the officials had invited all the members of the local government to this free breakfast event where they then gave a presentation or a kind of pitch on how Texas prisoners could be used to fight their next wildfire. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in that moment, I was actually kind of stunned. I, I knew about inmate firefighters, but it was really like hearing someone talk about a product that they had discovered or <laughs> um, almost like an episode of uh, a Shark Tank, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. Like prisoners were these products that could be, you know, sold to communities to do this really dangerous work. It was, um, it was very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. 
which is something that's continued to characterize prison systems, especially in the U.S. So um, I started researching the subject, and I realized there's just this enormous gap in knowledge about the role of prisoners in disasters and as well as how disasters impact prisoners. I'm talking about, you know, why do we need to talk about prisoners and disasters? Prisoners often represent the most vulnerable populations in society. Uh, J.C. Gaillard has actually, he's written about this in his research mm. on prisoners in New Zealand, and that um, that same uh, pattern can be observed here in the U.S. and really uh, everywhere across the world. Um, and, and here in the U.S., we have this enormous um, social problem that we talk about as mass incarceration, where the U.S. leads the world in rates of incarceration. Mm. And our prisoners, they're, they're disproportionately poor, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, low levels of educational attainment, and high levels of physical and mental illness. Uh, so the factors that we talk about with people being socially vulnerable to disasters those are the same people who are most vulnerable to being incarcerated. And, and I see this a lot in looking at emergency management in prisons. This is something that they, uh, they know and they prepare for and they acknowledge in their emergency materials where they say, you know, the, the communities where prisoners come from, it's their friends and families who are going to be disproportionately impacted. And so they prepare for an increased level of um, emotional distraughtness among among prisoners. So they try to uh, plan to increase, you know, access to emotional care resources, access to communication. Um, we don't know what that actually looks like, but they say mm. you should, you know, increase that. So when a disaster impacts a prison, it, it's really impacting this cross-section of, of the most vulnerable people in society. Um, and then on top of that, you have this uh, stigma of being a criminal, which often means, mm. you know, people, they're just not, they're just not as sympathetic mm. um, because prisoners are labeled as criminals. They're labeled as having this uh, faulty character. And then that also, you know, means they can't be trusted to tell the truth. So when a disaster happens, like uh, during Hurricane Harvey, there was a, the federal prison in Beaumont, Texas, uh, experience in flooding and a lot of issues. Uh, prisoners were communicating to the public through their loved ones or through journalists about the dangerous conditions they, they were in, and um, they were just kind of written off by the public or by government representatives. So the institution's response is, you know, always trusted over the word of prisoners. And I would say what the institution says is almost always in contrary to what prisoners are saying. So the message is typically, you know, things are fine, things are under control, there's nothing to see here, folks, move on. So, um, you know, prisoners, they're, they're incredibly vulnerable, and there's this lack of, you know, oversight and accountability uh, about what happens to them, especially in a disaster. I'm so glad that you're doing this work, Carly. It's something that we certainly um, don't hear about at all, almost, um, in, re in relation to disasters. And I don't think that many people, uh, many of our listeners will actually know that the role that prisoners play in responding to disasters. 
And we've seen this in the British Virgin Isles after Maria and also in California um, in terms of fighting wildfires. That may be something that people have seen on the news. Um, but prison labor is something that isn't really acknowledged. And as you know, many people refer to prison labor as modern slavery. And um, the way that anybody convicted of crimes can be leased out by the state to private corporations um, who just extract profit from their labor for little or no pay. And a story that I saw from California where these prisoners were, would not actually be able to join the fire department um, upon release because of their felony. Um, it's just crazy. So why is this something that we don't acknowledge? And what, what can we do to change this? How can we shine light on this subject? Well, first, I want to say um, and just kind of talk a little bit more about, um, you know, what type of work that prisoners do in disasters, because I think that's one of the major issues is that um, their labor is often, you know, invisible unless unless it is this uh, more high profile um, work that's getting a little more attention. Uh, um, part of my work is is going through um, planning documents, news articles, um, Department of Corrections materials and finding just what do they do. So uh, people typically think that they're, you know, doing work that maybe they would always be doing, like um, picking up trash or debris on highways mm -hmm. or doing, you know, some construction work on a damaged public school. And um, frequently that is a lot of what the work is, but they, they do so, so much more. Um, prisoners were used to clean up oil after the BP oil spill they were shown to be doing that work without uh, being given real uh, personal protective equipment. Uh -huh. um, I've talked to prison officials that have sent prisoners to go out and kill diseased animals to um, stop the spread of disease. Uh, so they come in and they get this quick training and they go out and they do this very hazardous mm -hmm. uh, public health work. Um, they set up local shelters. They work on failing levees to try and stop disastrous flooding. Um, they rebuild damaged housing. They do search and rescue operations for missing people. Um, I found examples of prisoners being used to do really any type of work that needs to be done in an emergency or disaster. And I've actually talked to representatives of um, prison systems uh, at the state level where I ask, you know, what can prisoners do in a disaster? And the response is literally anything, anything we want. Yeah. Um, and practically speaking, uh, legally speaking, that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, prisoners are a significant component of how the United States deals with disasters. And um, other countries as well, but they're they're specifically built into our laws and policies. Um, for example, the the Stafford Act specifically includes prison labor as a reimbursable cost. So oh, wow. under um, the FEMA Public Assistance Program, states can have the costs of using prisoners reimbursed um, from the cost of paying them a small wage, the paying the prison guard to watch over and secure them. The cost of transporting them, feeding them—it's—it's it's specifically, you know, included in our policies. So uh, the most important thing that I, I think people should know about prison workers is that they don't have the same rights as civilian workers or access to the same resources. Uh, in the United States, they're legally defined as slaves under the Constitution. Mm -hmm. 
under the 13th Amendment, um, which was originally it was supposed to abolish slavery, but it added an exception for people who are convicted of a crime. So they don't have the right to refuse to work. So they can be sent out to do you know, hazardous uh, disaster work, and they can face really serious consequences for refusing to do that work. Um, they can be put in solitary confinement. They can be fined. Mm. It can affect their security status where uh, before they were a minimum security uh, prisoner, and then they've now been bumped up to uh, a higher security status. They may have to be transferred. Um, it can impact their chances of getting parole. So uh, legally, they don't have the right to say, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, so again, uh, we should be paying attention because this system set up to exploit prisoners for their labor especially in a disaster uh, which increases you know, their vulnerability. And um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Jackie Patterson at the NAACP. She's the director of the Environment and, uh, Environmental and Climate Justice Program. And she's worked to make sure that prisoners are included in their materials. So um, for example, in 2018, they released an action toolkit for communities uh, impacted by disasters called In the Eye of the Storm, A People's Guide to Transforming Crisis and Advancing Equity in the Disaster Continuum. And in this toolkit, they include um, specific directions for people to, um, to say, go and find out, you know, what is the role of prison workers in your community? Find out if they um, are being protected while they're working. Are, were they given specific uh, training? Were they given protective gear? And that just kind of adds on to this uh, community accountability, which is something that, you know, we can we can do if people know, you know, that that it's happening. Mm. It's just infuriating that um, in this way, slavery was not really abolished. It was kind of reformed or took a different path. And, you know, especially in the last 30 years, we've seen, um, you know, the, this really become a epidemic of mass incarceration of and affecting black communities in particular right so mm -hmm. um, maybe you could tell us a bit more about your research into this and what sort of approaches you're taking to exploring these issues and trying to um, make a difference in the way that people see these problems well I think that uh, researchers they have this um ability to to find information that maybe the public doesn't realize is there. Um, so for example, um, you know, some of my work, I, I looked at state level emergency operations plans and I looked at, you know, how do we plan um, to protect prisoners? And, um, you know, that, that research yielded a lot of information. Um, for example, you know, states in their plannings, they, they have more information there about how to respond to um, emergencies at a prison that are caused by prisoners. Uh, that would require this kind of uh, forceful response. Uh, for example, you know, riots, um, escapes, um, hostage situations, you know, states, they plan for that, but um, they're less likely to include provisions of if uh, a disaster would require you to provide um, extra services or, or to what are you going to do to um, get services reestablished at a prison? They're, they're less likely to 
um, include that kind of information. So knowing things like policies and plans that we are familiar with every day, that we look at every day, um, that's something that we have to be able to uh, document and get that, uh, draw attention to that kind of information. Um, you know, we talk about the Stafford Act, we talk about public assistance uh, programs on, the, on a regular basis, but uh, never did I think to um, search for how our prisoners included in that document. Mm. And when you do, you find that they are included. They're included as a labor source. Mm. So there are so many different things that, um, you know, researchers have to contribute. And then also, you know, looking at the, the work that, um, you know, civilians are, are, are doing because uh, many members of the public don't know that this is going on. Um, they're, they're not familiar with it. Uh, many researchers have no idea um, that even the policies that they are, you know, so familiar with um, include this kind kind of uh, exploitation, but there are civilians, um, there are people and, and organizations that work directly with prisoners that they know about this information. Yeah. Um, they try to draw attention to it, but they don't feel like people with power are, are listening. Um, there's uh, an organization in Texas that I've, I've been following and trying to lend support when I can, uh, the Texas Prison Air Conditioning Advocates. Mm -hmm. And, um, by following them, you learn that in the majority of prisons in Texas, they don't have air conditioning. No. So Texas is a very hot state, mm -hmm. and um, they and it's getting hotter. The the number of days um, with climate change, the number of days that are over a hundred degrees, uh, are increasing, and they see that as uh, impacting the prison population. And they're trying to draw attention to how extreme weather, how uh, disasters, how these environmental um, conditions, they're seen, how they are part of the way we punish prisoners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we don't even, you know, provide for them, you know, these basic kind of um, rights as to uh, a temperature that is, is comfortable or um, livable because many people each year they get they get sick um they uh become overheated uh, uh they have heat stroke heat exhaustion um and there are prisoners who have died uh because of these conditions but um you know every year they argue we need to do this um and and um you know it's almost just uh, prisoners either they're not seen as sympathetic or when you look at it, you know, those conditions, they're, they're seen as they deserve this. Yeah. This is part of, you know, their punishment, um, which is extremely unjust when you look at um, things like uh, mass incarceration, the, the, the war on drugs and, and the vulnerability of the people who are incarcerated. And, um, and that, you know, this vulnerable population is bearing this you know, enormous burden when it comes to hazards and disasters. We don't really know what happens in prisons during disaster, right? We kind of, I guess everybody understands that inmates um, 
can't really provide their own safety, right? Because they're incarcerated. So they cannot evacuate or they can't even prepare their own, um, I don't know, flood bags or anything to kind of rescue themselves and recover, right? So they can't prepare for a disaster Mm -hmm. on their own. And therefore they're at a complete mercy of prisoners' administrators. And of course, I guess, as we all... um, can sort of imagine these administrators may not always be sympathetic to the cause, right? And they kind of they're asked to keep an eye out on the suspicious and uh, you know terrible people. And I'm using it as kind of in quotation marks. <laughs> so what what does happen in a prison during a disaster? You know who's responsible for what? Um, what are the procedures and processes? Right. Sure. Um, so this is also something that um, because prisons and prisoners are kind of outside the typical systems of emergency management, um, there's um, there's not, we don't know as much as we should. Uh, prisons are often compared to small towns. Uh, they have their own systems in place separate from civilian communities. Uh, your local emergency management agency is not in charge of the local prison. Uh, if it's a state prison, the state is in charge. If it's a federal prison, the Federal Bureau of Prisons is in charge. So there is this you know, distinct separation in emergency management between prisons and the public. And uh, one challenge I see talked, uh, it's a challenge that I see talked a lot about in emergency preparedness materials for prisons, uh, is the need to get beyond that mindset because as um, with disasters, there, there is this overwhelm, overwhelm, um, the overwhelming of the ability for the institution to respond. So they need resources from the outside, but um, there's this mindset they need to, um, you, you know, um, kind of keep things close. So um, they expect that the government will have their backs, but they also um, know they're going to face some scrutiny. So there's this um, kind of mindset of we need to circle the wagons, which is a phrase I've, I've come across quite a bit in, in the materials mm-hmm. and um, to shut it all down. So uh, access to prisons by journalists and, and researchers in the midst of, uh, or in the, even in the aftermath of an emergency, it's, it's just impossible. Um, I experienced this myself uh, when I went to Georgia for a research project I was doing. I wanted to learn about how Hurricane Irma impacted the prison system. And you know, at first I was told that you know, personnel were too busy and to stop bothering them. So I did. Um, and I, I was able to interview someone in an administration about their emergency operations as well as a couple of wardens, but and it was very challenging. So to actually gain access to prisons, to interview prisoners, to see facilities uh, as a researcher, you have to have an agreement set up with that prison, uh, with that system beforehand. And those agreements are very stringent. They are designed to you know, protect the system. So you might have to give up the rights to the methods you want to use or um, to your findings. You have to get approval to do your research and then approval to release your findings. Um, you could do all of your research and then the state could say, uh, this compromises security hmm. and that would be that. Uh, they would never see the light of day. So that's one reason that the voices of prisoners are often left out of research in emergencies and disasters. They're a very difficult population to access even after even after they're released. Uh, it's difficult to get through IRB. And uh, in many reasons, this is good because uh, researchers have exploited prisoners historically uh, 
but it, it also contributes to their vulnerability in a way because then uh, because it, it's led to us not knowing very much about what goes on uh, in a prison during a disaster. Mm. Um, the uh, majority of literature on prison emergencies is devoted to the violence of prisoners. So kind of like I talked about before, um, when you try to find information about a disaster um, in the prison literature, that means a riot. So, um, and that's an emergency that would, you know, require... Um, it would it invokes violence from the state to kind of recon, to to regain control through uh, militarized force. Um, so uh, it's it's not a, about a humanitarian response or the types of events that would require that that um, kind of response. Um, and sometimes that that works really well for the state uh, if they respond with force because uh, to the public that makes the government look like they you know have a handle on the situation. So. For example, talking about you know the British British Virgin Isles, there were these reports or, or rumors actually that prisoners had you know broken out and were committing acts of violence. Um, mm. And in response, you know the military showed up and they locked down the area. But um, you know what had happened was that the prison was basically destroyed. You can see yeah. uh, photos of buildings with no walls, with roofs caved in, and um, from reports of um, other local people, they said well, what actually happened was that the prisoners were still fenced in and they were asking to be let out because they had no food or no water mm. or medical care. And then when someone did, um, you know, open the gate, they were out uh, helping members of the community altruistically. Um, so those kind of from outsider reports, we get some perspective, but it's very challenging because um, what's been written has been written um, uh, mostly directing towards um, something you would think is less controversial, at least from the state, where prisoners are violent, they need to be contained, this is how we responded. Um, so there's a lot of materials on that, but there just aren't, aren't very many materials that tell us what happens inside, you know, when something like a disaster happens. And, and that's when it's best to look to local organizations that have contacts with them who they do um, try to serve as an outlet to try to get, you know, their stories out. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking, um, as you were talking about kind of, you know, the, the response in prison, um, I was just going in my memory through these TV shows, which became quite prominent, right, in recent years about the way prison kind of works, it was like Breaking Bad and then Orange is New Black. Um, and there is never such representation of prisoners as kind of helpful people, right? Or there is never a disaster in those um, in those two series. So I wonder if that sort of uh, forces our image even further, you know, and creates the narrative that actually is not helpful when you are. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the you know looking at prisoners as being you know dangerous that is one of those aspects that does increase their vulnerability. Um, you know, prisoners are, prisons are built out in, uh, rural areas because there's, you know, need for a large tract of cheap land, but also because the public is afraid of them. They're afraid of, um, escapes. They're afraid of prison emergencies. Um, they want prisoners, you know, as far away from society as possible. So there is this theme of, of fear of prisoners that, uh, really runs through emergency management and, um, you know, that, that perception, um, kind of looking at the other side of it is, 
that perception that prisoners are inherently dangerous has really justified, you know, a lack of attention and a lack of resources for correctional institutions and disasters. So um, when emergency planning focuses on prisoners as the hazards, you know, um, prisons aren't held to a standard of providing that humanitarian response to prisoners. Uh, they're part of, you know, the problem uh, as it's seen. Um, and then the other, you know, kind of aspect of, of that fear is uh, when an emergency does happen at prison, uh, at a prison, first responders may be too afraid to act on behalf of prisoners. We've seen this happen, you know, historically in the U.S. where uh, fires at prisons have, uh, they've always been very common um, and not people typically think um, about uh, fires that are intentionally set by prisoners, but you know, the buildings are very old. They're large, they're expensive to maintain, they're expensive to do fire, ha fire mitigation, to do hazard mitigation at. And so there, there is this history of these, um, they're very hazardous uh, facilities. Um, but in historic prison fires, uh, for example, uh, the one in Ohio in 1930 is one of the most famous prison fires. Uh, it killed, uh, the fire killed 322 prisoners, um, and, and a large number of that was because um, the prison workers, the guards, they were too afraid to let prisoners out of their cells in an emergency. Um, there was just this, uh, either they, they, they said they were too afraid, or it was just the idea that they would let them you know, out, that they would let them loose was just so contrary to what they had been taught and, and practiced that they just, they couldn't, they couldn't do it or they couldn't do it quickly enough. And we've seen this repeat itself um, continuously. So, uh, for example, in um, 2005, when the Orleans Parish Prison was not evacuated with Hurricane uh, Katrina uh, and the flooding, the flooding began, prisoners were just abandoned. They were uh, left in their cells, and no one was going to let them out. Yeah. Um, the local sheriff was quoted as saying, um, you know, when evacuations were taking place, they said, are you going to evacuate? He said, no, that's where they belong. They're right where they belong. So, um, you know, prisoners were left in their cells and in chest-high water, afraid of dying. Um, and there were, there were escape attempts, and um, I, I think a couple were successful, but um, the prisoners who did try to escape. They were uh, shot at with rubber bullets. They were tear gassed. So when a the the institution of a prison, when a prisoner tries to escape, even if it's from conditions that would uh, pose a threat to their lives, they are viewed as as dangerous. This is fascinating. I kind of, uh, you know, for me, this was a completely new, uh, new area. For most people, it is. It is absolutely amazing. So much to think about. I really hope the listeners would kind of, it, it would be a food for thought, you know, for many. Yeah, I think it's a dimension of disaster research that our community can really start to talk about more for sure, because it's, it's really not something that I hear talked about mm -hmm. at all. No, not so. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much for being on with us, Carly. 
Really appreciate it. Sure. No, I, again, I, I just really enjoyed you know, the opportunity. I hope that this, you know, sparks conversations and I mm. hope that, I hope that researchers out there hear this and, and think, um, you know, where are the prisoners in my research? Because they are there. Yeah. Um, you can use your um, writing, you can use your research to make that, um, to make them visible, to uh, draw attention to the issues. And, um, you know, citizens can hear this and they can look up tools to, you know, where are the prisons in your communities? We have so, I mean, again, we're the leaders in the rates of incarceration wow. of the world. So we have prisons um, all in our communities. You may not even know that they're there. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't even talk about, we didn't to talk about jails. Um, you know, jails are everywhere and those are, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a different conversation just because, um, you know, much of this discussion will apply, but, um, people in jail, typically they have more, they're supposed to have more rights because they haven't been convicted of a crime, but, um, you know, there's not, we, we know even less about what happens to a jail in, in a disaster. Mm. So those aren't responsible um, to one state agency. That's your local government. Mm. So mm. there are so many ways that, you know, people outside of disaster researchers or outside of practitioners where you can um, get involved in this issue and, and look at what, what are the state organ, what are the nonprofits in, in your area that are supporting prisoners? You know, mm. how can you how does that support apply in disasters? Are they, you know, are they recovering from, you know, a recent disaster themselves? We don't know. So there are just so many things that um, we can, you know, use our resources, our voices to draw attention to, and then um, to support those who are already doing that, already doing that work for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for leaving us with a challenge, I think, to, to become more aware and get involved and help to shape the narrative. Thanks again to our listeners for tuning in. We are um, releasing every Monday, as you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at DisastrousDecon and also on Instagram at DisastrousDecon. You've been listening to Xenia, Jason, and me, Carly Purdom, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. 